The following podcast is for healthcare professionals only. All views expressed belong to our speakers and don't necessarily reflect those of Nestle Health Science. Hello and welcome to the Inside Medical Nutrition podcast, a podcast powered by Nestle Health Science and hosted by me, Dr. Linia Patel. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Lydia Collins-Hussey, a specialist pediatric dietitian, and we are discussing her top tips on complementary feeding, weaning, and an allergen introduction for infants with food allergies. Hi, Lydia, and welcome to this podcast. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Today, we're going to be talking about complementary feeding or weaning and food allergen introduction to infants with food allergies. Now, before we go into a lot more detail, it'll be great if you could tell me and the listeners a little bit about you. Why did you want to become a dietitian and why did you specifically want to become a pediatric dietitian? Yes, absolutely. What drew me to being a a specialist pediatric allergy dietitian, I just fell into it, if I'm honest. So I came into dietetics quite late on or classed as a mature student at 22, 23, which I didn't feel like a mature student then. I'd previously done a degree in English literature and drama, so completely different compared to the arts, compared to the science. So I graduated a little bit later when I was 26 and my mum at the time was like, you need to apply for everything and anything. (laughs) And at that time I lived down south and I wasn't expecting to move up north and I've lived here ever since. So I got my first post within the NHS just a general band five role because I wasn't doing any pediatrics. I've done some pediatrics free placements and things like that, but very little at that point. But within nine months, a specialist pediatric role came up and I went into that and got the job and very quickly. So I've I progressed very quickly within my career within the NHS at the time. So when I went into that role, they gave me a lot of CPD and a lot of training yeah. around that. And that's where my passion came for food allergy because my caseload at the time was predominantly food allergy and I just rolled with it. So I really fell into pediatrics and they say, yeah. when you stay in pediatrics, you stay in pediatrics. I don't know why. I think it's just because we love it <laughs> so much. Yeah don't kind of move into other specialities. You move into other areas, obviously, of dietetics, but within pediatrics, that's what's nice about pediatrics. There's lots of different areas that you can work in. And food allergy, I love because you really feel like you can make a difference, but the research at the moment is so fast-paced as well. There's a lot, and we'll obviously go into that later on, especially in relation to complementary feeding as well. Yeah. No, that's super interesting. So you're saying the year you fell into it and you got upskilled in the job, which is, mm. I think, one of the best ways to do learning. Exactly. Very lucky because that doesn't... Does it not happen? So tell me what the other route is. So usually to become a specialist pediatrician, just dietitian, does that take other training? Yes, I think it's important. You don't have to. I think some people will learn on the job or if they've got that supervision alongside that. So there's certainly roles where we're seeing and five dietitians moving into that rotation, we kind of band six pediatric roles. I haven't worked in the NHS for a little while now, so I don't know the ins and outs of it, how it completely works now. But for me, when I trained, I went through the University of Plymouth and I actually trained down there anyway, but I did the BDA, British Dietetic Association, pediatric modules. And I just started out doing a few of those. I knew I needed the basics, the grounding. 
And that's where I decided that I wanted to continue to do those. And I wanted to complete the master's in that. So I did a part-time master's and and I only finished doing that back in 2021. So the master's has taken me a long time to do because alongside full-time work, it is hard. So Um, what was the master's in, Lydia? It was in paediatric dietetics. It's a professional practice paediatric dietetics. I okay, with a food called. allergen focus or not? There is, or I made sure there was a food allergen focus. So there are modules that are pasted around there and then you do your dissertation. So my dissertation was very allergy focused. So it was actually on the dietitian's perception of tenant health for those children that have cow's milk protein allergy. So very timely with COVID yeah. as well. And I, at the time I was working for a company that a dietetic-based company down in London, that all of that care was online and virtual. And that was before COVID anyway. And influenced with the work that I was doing at the time. But I wanted to show that dietitians are accepting this way of working. And COVID has certainly helped that even more now as well. Exactly. So you mentioned your work that you're doing at the moment and you're not working for the NHS. So what does your work pattern look like at the moment? What are you involved in? Yeah, so I have my own business, the Milk Allergy Dietitian. So I work for myself three days a week. And within that, I am specialist paediatric allergy dietitian. So it's not just milk that I see, but it is predominantly milk allergy and mainly the early years for that. So mm-hmm. under five years, but I would I will say mainly under 12 months as well as so the babies. And within my work, it's very varied. So I have my own clinic, I have my own programs that I have and different courses that I run through that but I also do a lot of teaching okay. as well so I've been involved with Glasgow University and Surrey University as part of the NSC lecturing programs I'm also on the faculty of the RCPCH and within the BDA and their CMPA courses so I facilitate a lot of training mm-hmm. and I really like that side of things and then I get to do things like this and sit on podcasts which is lovely so anything and everything and I really like that mix if I'm honest. And then the other two days I work for Allergy UK, which is the UK leading charity for allergy within the UK. And there I am a clinical dietetic advisor. So what that means is one day a week I do a clinic for them and I see a range of patients. So that's pediatrics, but I also see adults. So I dabble a bit with adults, which I prefer peds if I'm honest. Um, and it's nice to have that mixture there. And then the other day that I work there, again, I love it because it's a mixture of things. And I sit in a clinical team with two allergy nurses, no, three allergy nurses. And it's lovely because I learn a lot through them as well regarding like eczema management, asthma management and things as well. Yeah. And on that project side, it could be anything and everything. So we have a lot of resources for the website. We could work at a policy level, so speaking with other stakeholders and things. Very much energy awareness, podcast, masterclasses, that type of thing as well. That's a fantastic mix. And in all of that, are there any specific passion projects that you're involved in that you would like to share? Oh, what am I working on at the moment? I'm just trying to think what I'm working on. Any passion projects? Or even with the BDA, perhaps? Yeah, so within my work, so, oh, I guess I've, I've forgotten to mention that I'm part of the food allergy specialist group as well. So I sit on the committee. So I was the secretary. I'm going to be incoming chair in the next couple of years or so. And I, and we are working on some good projects within that. I've just worked on a cost of living resource for allergy mm. specifically, trying to share that with the BSACI, so the British Society of Allergy and Clinical Immunology, and to get that and help patients out 
and healthcare professionals. So they've got a resource that they can give out to parents as well. So hopefully it's written, it's uh, drafted, it's been reviewed by multiple different dietitians. So hopefully that will be out shortly. So needed as well, right? Mm-hmm. What I want to do now, Lydia, is maybe just focus a little bit on your current clinical caseload. So the question I have, which I'm sure you get asked a lot, is there must be some recent trends in terms of food allergies and you obviously being specialist in, in this area. What are the trends that you're seeing? Yeah, definitely. And as I mentioned earlier, food allergy is really fast paced and there's lots of lots of research out there. I think what's frustrating is that we have this research, but actually to embed it into clinical practice and policy takes a long time. And we'll talk through some of those studies, especially when we're looking at allergens, that side of things and allergy prevention is very much at the forefront of allergy at the moment. So particularly looking at, from a dietary perspective, there's a lot of work. So a well-known dietitian in the field, Karina Venter, she's doing a lot around maternal diets and how that can impact as well. There's a lot of research around the microbiome, but we still don't know a lot. We know that there can be certain strains that can help. There's a lot of information and research around that side of things. And then obviously the introducing allergens, allergy prevention. I'm just trying to think of this. I mean, there's lots of areas, but it's also around diet diversity for the baby and their diet as well. So yeah, it's a really exciting area to work in. Okay, so we're seeing it's fast moving. You're seeing more children with allergies for multiple reasons. We don't know if that's linked with microbiome before, or perhaps we're more exposed to different allergens as well. So what tends to be the most common food allergy that you would see? Milk allergy is the most common one that I will see. But in the first year of life, all allergies that we tend to see in little ones will be milk, egg, peanuts. We can see soya, tree nuts, fish, wheat allergy, or like the top nine and sesames within that. So they class for 90% of allergens that we see. Essentially, we can react to any food, uh, yeah. protein. Um, but those are the more common ones that we see. And what's good and positive is that prognosis for milk and egg, we tend to outgrow those ones or around 80% or outgrow by school year. Whereas there are certain allergens that are more persistent, such as peanut, some of the tree nuts and fish and shellfish. So within adults, we tend to see more of those allergies, but also allergies in relation to fruits and vegetables and so a condition called pollen food syndrome as well. So I'm not going to touch on adults today as we're yeah. focusing on peds, but Yes, very much in peds, we will see classically milk, egg, peanut allergies. Okay. And who's referring these allergy patients to come see you? So to me, it's usually a self-referral because it's my own business. And then within Allergy UK, again, they will ring up into the helpline and then we'll see them that way. So within the NHS, it would be a GP health visitor referral into either secondary care or an allergy clinic depending on what those symptoms, because some allergies can be managed in primary care. And we've got guidance around that, particularly with milk allergy. We look at milk allergy or food allergy in general. We have two types. So you've got what we call an IgE-mediated allergy, so an immediate response. So typically those symptoms will present immediately or up to two hours. And those symptoms are very much, you will notice those are either facial swelling or a hive type reaction, or in severe cases, we've got breathing difficulties or anaphylaxis affecting circulation as well. And then we have what we call a delayed response allergy, so non-IgE mediated. So it still involves the immune system like IgE, Mm -hmm. but a different mechanism. And this type of allergy can be particularly tricky to diagnose because 
some of those symptoms can overlap, especially in baby with common symptoms that we see. So a lot of these symptoms are gastro. So we'll see a lot of reflux. We may see blood and mucusy stools, constipation, but we can also see skin symptoms such as eczema. That's mm-hmm. where it can get confusing because eczema can present. We know that's a big risk factor in IgE mediated as well for developing, particularly in the early months. Yeah, I think I've digressed there slightly, but yeah. Yeah, we're just talking about the different patients that you mm. see and how that kind of works in an NHS setting, a community yeah. setting and perhaps private practice. And I'm assuming that once you see them, there is that follow-up that needs to happen to make sure that you're, you're keeping on track or on top of how they whether they grow out of it or whether they don't grow out of it as well. I would like to know is if I was a parent and had a child who had an allergy, for example, and I came to see you, can you give me an overview of how you would help? Say I had a child that was five months and I came to see you. Talk me through what you would, the advice that you would give me. Yeah, absolutely. So before they would come through, I normally would ask for a little bit more history. So we do a bit of a a pre-assessment form and they'll complete that. But fundamentally, whenever there's allergy involved or suspecting allergy, always we advise an allergy-focused history and that's the cornerstone to diagnosis. And within that, we would talk through any family history. We know that can be a slight or we know that can be a risk factor, but not as much as a risk factor as I mentioned earlier around eczema so we look at the atop of the child so have they got any eczema or any other symptoms going on we'd go through a full history within that allergy focus history so understanding those symptoms so as i mentioned are they immediate or delayed how that baby is being fed currently are they breastfed or formula or combi feeding did the symptoms present when they first started solid? So they're at five months they may have started a little earlier or not it's understanding where these symptoms first started yeah. And understanding that history in a lot more detail and the amount that they've given. So if we're suspecting symptoms through breast milk, we don't understand what mum's been having in her diet, what if she's mm. done any exclusions already. So that current management as well. If baby's got those non-IGE mediated type symptoms, if they've had reflux, constipation, has there been any other management around that already? If there's been any medications and things as well. Also, with peds, fundamentally, we need to ensure that they're growing appropriately. Yeah. So we'd be checking their red book and their growth are along the centiles for both weights and their length. And yeah, just that overall picture on what is happening from there. Now, if we are suspecting allergy, depending on the different type, they may need, so for immediate type allergy, we have allergy testing that we can do alongside. So a lot of people think allergy testing is a kind of a black or white answer and it's not, or a screening test such, and it's not, it helps alongside that allergy focused history. We wouldn't just do ad hoc testing or panel testing as it were. The testing that we can do in immediate type allergies, your skin prick testing and your specific IgE blood testing. But unfortunately for non-IgE mediated allergy, there isn't a test for that. There's no validated test. So we would do that period of exclusion, whether that's maternal diet or baby, we change formula onto hyperallergenic formula. If it's milk allergy, we do that exclusion and then reintroduce back into the diet then. And then if it's confirmed, we then will avoid that the allergen is, and that's where the dietitian come in and discuss that management. So if it's milk, obviously we need to be ensuring that key nutrients are replaced, such as calcium, iodine, but also mum's diet, so calcium, vitamin D, yeah. those nutrients as well. And then in regards to weaning, which we can go into or complementary feeding in more detail, it is that management. What alternatives can they have in their diet? Just ensuring that they are 
they're not excluded and that they improve in their quality and life. They don't feel isolated with that allergy. So having that regular support. And that's the issue at the moment within healthcare and allergy is that there are long waiting times. People aren't being seen in a timely manner uh, and it's really tricky. So people do feel isolated and they're left to find information elsewhere. A lot of our patients are accessing social media as well. I myself is on social media, but I know a lot of my colleagues are as well, which is great that we're that voice for getting reliable information out. But there's obviously those that promote allergy testing that pry on the vulnerable and aren't necessarily reliable yeah. as well. And then there's the other side of it as well, the tolerance side. So with milk allergy, we know that a lot of little ones will outgrow and we will start a milk ladder approach where we would start to introduce baked milk back into the diet because we know that this is more likely to be tolerated when it's heated or in a, in a wheat matrix as well. And this is predominantly in non-IgE mediated allergy, but we are now seeing research for it to be done in IgE as well, but under the guidance the allergy team and that's really crucial we wouldn't go right start doing a ladder in our IGEs it really needs to be thought through in that MDT and yeah. that understanding but there has been a lot of research great paper from Ireland last year that came out starting a ladder approach um, from diagnosis and showing that they were outgrowing by six, 12, six to 12 months later yeah. which when we think about as I mentioned earlier, that most will outgrow or 80% by school age. If we can outgrow quicker, that's amazing. Yeah. So if I just summarize that, then I guess the yeah. your role as a dietitian is helping the diagnosis of finding out perhaps what's going on. And then depending on the age of the child, um, giving advice either to what the mother's eating or how you can do alternative feeding. And then weaning, to giving advice about weaning. And then as you go through that, looking at, okay, allergy reintroduction or not reintroduction, that's part of the journey that you would take them on. Yeah. Yes. It's where with the dietitian's role is fundamental. We're there from the beginning all the way to the end, yeah. but we might not be referred straight away. And that's the issue as well. Yeah. So if we just focus now on complementary feeding, which is weaning. Sounds like a basic question, but I know that we've got listeners who perhaps are not just dietitians, but can you briefly describe to me why infants actually need solid foods? Yeah, absolutely. So we know that by the time they reach six, six months, so that, new, that milk or breast milk formula is not enough, that we need to be getting nutrients elsewhere. For instance, there are key nutrients such as iron and zinc that, or particularly iron stores that start to to deplete and we need to replace those in, in baby's diet. But it isn't just about those nutrients is important in terms of development and energy, getting those calories into the diet. And just to go back to development, the opportunity for baby to progress in their development on their skills, swallowing, biting, chewing, and their self-feeding skills as well. It's really important. Okay. And you've mentioned that ideally we're looking at it around six months. Are you seeing a number of children who have start or have who have been weaned earlier than that. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> the guidance is around, and I think that's the key here. So the guidance says around six months, so twenty six weeks, but not before four months. And I think this is where it gets confusing for healthcare professionals and patients because the guidance has changed so much that we used to say from four months way back, and now it's changed to this around six months of age. So yes. 
But fundamentally, it is important. Yes, we have this guidance. It doesn't, baby might get to six months. It's not a case, oh, we must start now. It's more around those signs that baby is ready and that they're developmentally ready. So what signs are we looking for? (laughs) Absolutely. So the three main signs that we're looking for is that a baby is able to support their head and neck, that they have that hand-eye coordination so they're able to bring food or toys to their mouth. And that they're actually able to swallow food rather than spit it back out. And there's more information around this, especially around NHS. They've brought out there, they've just updated a campaign on this particular, so the better health. I think it's still called Start for Life, but it talks around these signs because there are other signs as well. These are the three, three main signs, but you may start to see baby is opening their mouth while they're watching parents having food as well and they're taking a lot more interest but these wouldn't be signs on their own they need to be alongside those three three main signs okay and so baby is ready to be weaned but this baby perhaps has a history of having a food allergy what's the process then that you would go through or what do we need to consider if we're then looking to perhaps wean a child who's got food allergies Yeah. So I think to explain the research a little bit about this as well. So the guidance is around six months, but for those that have or have higher risk factors, and as I mentioned earlier, those are that have severe eczema or have a pre-existing allergy already, then there is advice to start introducing from four months of age, but it is still when baby is developmentally ready as well. So those signs that I've mentioned, um, So in terms of the advice of what we need to consider is having that conversation with the family early on. And I would say this in general for all weaning, because weaning is quite daunting for some parents. They do find, they are anxious about it. And then if they've had an allergic reaction, they're going to, or Charles had an allergy earlier on, they are going to be even more anxious about starting to introduce sonnets. So it's really important to have that conversation early, especially around reassurance, what to be doing. We would still be following principles of introducing solids at six months. So we would still start with our first taste. And that tends to be, there's lots of different approaches, but the most common approach that we're seeing now is more of a veg-led approach, those bitter tastes. Because there's some research to suggest that we're more likely to set more foods later down the line as well. If we start with those bitter tastes, so we still introduce those first tastes. And then it's about getting the allergens in quite quickly. And as I mentioned, this is based on research that was actually done quite, quite a long time ago. So back in 2015, you may have heard of the LEAP study. So the LEAP study is early about peanut allergy. And we also yeah. had the EAT study, which is inquiring about tolerance um, study as well. So the LEAP study was for those infants that were high risk of developing peanut allergy. So those include those with moderate severe eczema and also already had an egg allergy um, Mm. as well. So basically, I'm not going to go into lots of detail because you can find out or we can link in these studies afterwards. But um, basically, they gave there were 640 babies involved in this study between four to 11 months did high risk. So there was one group where they introduced six grams of protein into the diet per week. And then we had the babies that were the control that didn't. And basically what they found is a, a reduction or 81% relative reduction at 60 months of age. So massive, really big randomized control trial. And it's still talked about today in a lot of detail. 
Where EAT slightly is different is that they were looking at general population and they looked at lots of different foods and they still found a reduction in food allergy, particularly certain allergens such as egg and peanut. And that's mm. where, when we're looking at the risk of introducing and which allergens to introduce first, we usually will say cooked egg and then to introduce peanut as well. But just to complicate things even more, we've had another study published only in the last couple of months looking at different risk factor or lower risk factor of peanuts and introducing that between four to six months as well. Now, just to clarify that, they... Um, the study was done through the University of Southampton, Graham Roberts, allergist with, a well-known allergist within the field. And that study is highlighted in lower population, in lower risk population, a 77% reduction. So we need to be mindful that is just in the research space at the moment. It's not policy or anything okay. like that. But for healthcare professionals, their recommendation is to put it into public health guidance. So it might be something that we see later down the line, and that's just for peanut allergy as well. But <laughs> things take a long time, as I've mentioned. Yeah. And for instance, 2015, there's still the advice that to avoid peanut and egg until two, three years of age. There's still that confusion out there in this space. Yeah. So hopefully podcasts like this can help healthcare professionals who may not be working in this space or just about to move into this um, area can clarify that. No, well. it's a good point because, and it's exciting, it's a fast evolving space. But as you say, it's a little bit more complicated for things to come into policy. So what, yeah. what would you say would be your top resources or places to go that you would recommend clinicians or listeners to this podcast for them to upskill themselves and for them to keep up to date as well so that they can provide the right advice to their patients? Yeah. So keeping in an eye on obviously public health recommendations. So within the allergy space, it's always good to link in with the British Society of Allergy, Clinical Immunology, but also the European guidelines, the IACI as well, because we do follow some of that within the UK as well. We've got guidance for healthcare professionals on this that was brought out in 2018 about it introduction of allergens. So the BD, the BDA, the Food Allergy Specialist Group and BSACI, they came together and they have specific guidance for healthcare professionals, but also fact sheets for, it's quite a wordy document, but you can talk through with your patients with that as well. But it's also keeping an eye on that research and specific journals that are coming out that are allergy based as well. Lydia, I would love to have a practical example. So for example, if I am a mum, with a child with a calcium allergy, how would weaning work in practice for me? So weaning would still be the same, but obviously we're taking a big food group out of the milk. So we need to give advice around that and what to be avoiding. So we'd be looking at food labels and that side of things. Also what alternatives that they can have in their diet. So we know from six months of age, we can use certain shopable alternatives in, in cooking and cereal, for instance, but not as a drink until... 12 months of age and that will really depend as well on baby and their growth their appetite if they've got multiple allergies going on as well we don't automatically always move on to an alternative milk they may still be breastfeeding or using a hyperallergenic formula and in that case that's that, that's absolutely fine so milk alternatives they're not all nutritionally the same and so there's certain ones that i would advise more for instance a soy based alternative or they could use their express breast milk or hyperallergenic formula it's something like a baby porridge or yeah. whatever as well 
So if we are looking at alternatives, it tends to be more soya-based that I will go with or pea, but quite often we see that cross-reactivity is quite high in our mm. on IgE milk allergy. It can be up to 60% or so. So soya may not also be appropriate either. In that case, we can look at other options. So pea milk or an oat milk, but I tend to avoid the nut-based milks, not because they're nut or anything, because they're lower in energy and protein. And they really need, babies grow very quickly in the first year of life and they need that energy. They need that fat yeah. in their diet. So I avoid those and also rice milk and that public health guidance because the inorganic arsenic level isn't safe for, for the under fives with that as well. There is like super milks that are out there like that are coconut based, which would be, su- uh, which would be suitable, but... Generally, most coconut milks aren't the same with the other, with almond milk and things like that as well. And then as part of that advice, we'd still be talking around the introduction of allergens as well and how to appropriately introduce those. And then making sure that we are replacing key nutrients. So through those alternatives, such as calcium and iodine in particular is a mineral that has become up the forefront in allergy research at the moment because our main sources are from white fish. And if we're taking dairy products and if we're taking both out of the diet, then it can be quite hard to replace. So ensuring that these milk alternatives are well fortified and not organic is really important as well. So lots of education is needed around being, you know, some, it really depends on their lifestyle and their budget as well, especially the cost of living. We are seeing these, there's some good research actually from the FSA saying that we're spending 12 to 25 percent more allergies families are spending that on their weekly shot compared to those that don't have allergies so that's a substantial burden for yeah. allergy parents as well so yeah got to be very mindful around budgets and what can be what they can afford as well and then in terms of resources around that we've got as i've mentioned already the nhs and their guidance around general weaning but we've also got guidance and recipe ideas and things like that so on social media you'll find a lot of allergy platforms to get the ideas for recipes and then you've also got if you're using a hypoallergenic formula the manufacturers will provide recipe booklets and things like that as well yeah no that's super useful thank you very much are there any top tips that you would give listeners today that they need to bring up when they're discussing complementary feeding and particularly weaning with children with allergies? Yeah, definitely. There are definitely lots of top tips because that resource that I mentioned from the BSACI and the Food Allergy Specialist Group talks you through and it's it's important to talk to the patient through that, what to do when there's a reaction or if, there, if we are suspecting reactions within that but also those top tips on how to actually introduce the allergen. I think we can say, oh, go and introduce peanut. Yeah. How are they actually? How much? Yeah. How frequently? Exactly. And mm. that's what the resource helps you with. It talks you through, yes, we're aiming for two teaspoons or, or if more, if we can, of peanut butter a week. But that peanut butter is quite a claggy consistency. So we need to make sure that we're watering that down, either with breast milk or formula, hypoallergenic formula or, or boiled water, for instance, as well. So it's making sure when we're introducing these allergens that baby as well, there's nothing else going on, that we're introducing it in a timely, we're introducing it timely to ensure yeah. that we are making an impact as well. It's also about still exposing to other foods alongside that. And when we do introduce, to make sure it's small amounts, so just a tip of the teaspoon that we would start with and build up to that, because they're not going to take big amounts to start with. It's all about first tanks initially. So if we started with that virgin-led approach, then we can mix the peanut butter or really well-cooked 
blended down egg that includes both the yolk and the white in, into baby's diet. And as I've mentioned, it's important to keep that then into the diet to maintain the tolerance because there's no point in giving it ad hoc because that can mm. then keep the child at risk if we're only going to introduce it twice in the next six months as well because sometimes those reactions can be on second or third exposure as well. Yes, and then just monitoring all the time and either advancing or knowing where to go back. And I suppose those all these guides have all that information very specifically. Yeah, they do. It's trying to find that information. Sometimes Google can help with that. So that if you go on the BSACI website and type in early seeding guidance, it's all on there for healthcare professionals and for the patient leaflet as well and free to download. Yeah, no, fantastic. And then I'm curious to understand, there must be specific questions that parents who have children with allergies ask because they're wanting that extra help or support when it comes to weaning. From your experience, what are some of those questions and how have you helped such parents in the past? Yeah, the first one is how to even introduce allergens, which we've gone into already. They just don't know where to start or how to do it alongside their diet. They're also concerned nutritionally what to do and what vitamins and that side of things yeah. as well. So we've got public health guidance around that. So if after six months for vitamins A, C, and D, up until five years of age. Um, and also, unless we're having more than 500 mils of formula or hypoallergenic formula a day. In regards to other, there's loads when it comes to, depending on what their allergies are, but it is more around how to actually introduce that food and how to keep it and maintain it in the diet. So another lovely resource that I like, it is an Australian website, but it is through a, a PhD project because Australia have one of the highest rates of allergy in the world. And they're very top on their game. We're not far behind them, but we're, they're very top on their game with allergy prevention. So the website's called Nick Allergies in the Bug. And it's a brilliant resource. I use it all the time. And that's got loads of recipes on how to keep that tolerance in the diet. So those allergens in the diet from six months, what textures to be looking for from nine months and 12 months as well. So beautiful resource. I love it. And But it's also got videos on what to be looking out for. As I mentioned, those signs earlier when baby is ready. And also around eczema management, because we know that eczema is a super a big risk factor for allergy development. Yeah developing so if we can ensure that we're optimizing skin and that's the case for when we actually introduce allergens so i forgot to mention earlier if we're introducing before six months we need to be mindful of our approach we can have spoon feeding or we can have baby led and if we're introducing before four months we're unlikely to be ready developmentally for some of those finger foods and it's better to introduce spoon to spoon feed because we know exactly how much is being given but also it's not being spread around their mouth because sometimes we can get sensitized then through our skin as well okay no that makes absolute sense that brings me very nicely to the close which unfortunately we have to do i've loved this conversation and it's basically to say what are your main takeaways for health professionals on complementary feeding, weaning, and particularly allergen introduction. If you were just to sum, sum up this conversation in your three top tips, what would they be? I think the main one is reassurance for parents and giving lots of reassurance around this area because a lot of it they do already know, but they just need some more guidance or signposting. So the other one would be that signposting so those reliable resources that I've mentioned today, so NIP allergies in the bub, the BSACI, but also general weaning guidance, so through the NHS and their campaigns as well. 
But I think it's important also to make sure that as a healthcare professional, we're having these conversations early, yeah. which can be really difficult. And it would be more the GP and the health visitor that are seeing these patients before the dietitian. And to consider those children that are higher risk and that have to have that conversation and that they do have an informed choice. They may not start at four months because the baby's not developmentally ready, but they have that knowledge. They feel empowered mm. to then take this forward as well. Because, yeah, it is fast paced. And so another point is to just keep up to date with those guidelines and campaigns, as I've mentioned, social media. And for myself, I follow a lot of consultants on Twitter and find out about a lot of the latest research that yeah. way. Or and then go on to find it in the relevant journals as well, because it's so hard to keep up with everything that's no. going on. So yeah, keeping in touch with those guidelines, our registration, the BDAs, the courses that they run. So I just noticed the other day, the pediatric group had run another group around that. So there can be those around um, allergy and specific kid weaning training as well. Exactly. I love that. And all the websites you mentioned, we can link to this podcast as well. That's why I love having conversations on this podcast because we get in experts like yourself talking about really topical things and giving really practical advice to our listeners as well. So, Lydia, thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for your expertise. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Medical Nutrition. If you enjoyed the podcast and found the content useful, please share it with your colleagues and consider subscribing so you never miss an episode. For more information on this topic or to share your feedback, please visit the Nestle Health Science N Plus Hub or click on the link in the show notes.